Genesis chapter 37, we'll pick up where we left off, kind of in the middle where we left off. Last week, we covered the chapters before and after, but in Genesis 37, we begin the story of Joseph. Genesis chapter 37. Some of you like to read, and when you pick up a book, does anybody ever read, you read, does anybody read the last page of the book before they read the book to see if it's worth reading? You don't have to raise your hands if you're guilty. I can always see it on your faces. <laughs> Many people do that, and uh, I've always wondered my wi my, why my wife did that, because it ruins it, I think, for the, it ruins the surprise and the climax. But sometimes it's worth doing to see if the book's worth reading, and that's what we're going to do a little bit this morning, at least to start off with. Because the story of Joseph is really the story of, of the sovereign God caring for his people and, and preserving his people. It's a story of God's preservation of Israel in reality. Because we know Satan is always sought to destroy God's people. Anti-Semitism, as we call it today, is not new. In all its expressions, it's really the conspiracy of Satan to thwart God's plan to restore all things to himself. And God has chosen Israel and the people of Israel and really the king of Israel, Jesus himself, to accomplish that. And here in the story of Joseph, we find God preserving that plan because God had planned to use Israel to provide the Messiah, the Savior. We know Jesus was, was the promised seed that would come and conquer sin, death, and hell. Jesus paid for sins and rose victorious. And now offers to all lost sinners the gift of forgiveness and the deliverance from eternal hell to eternal life. It's also going to be through Jesus Christ that God's going to reclaim this world. At a second coming, he's, Jesus will put down our rule and authority. So in the person of Christ, we find the fulfillment of God's plan. And the person of Christ was promised to come through the Jewish people. And therefore, here in the time of Joseph, Satan had a plan to destroy God's people through what we'll come to see, the, a seven-year famine to try to eliminate God's people, to thwart God's plan. And yet in this account, we find God's in a sovereign power is preventing that from happening because God ultimately is control. And he used Joseph to accomplish that. And the last chapter of the book, chapter 50, if you want to turn over there, just we'll flip right back. I said we'll read the last uh, part of the story. Verse 20, what do you say, verse 19, and we can start with Jesus said to them, his brothers, do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about, as it is this day, to save many people alive. That's the point of the story. And Joseph was brought to a place in the sovereign power of God and plan of God through many trials and difficulties and challenges to the place where he could save many people alive. And in reality... The spiritual application of that was that he also preserved the line of the Messiah. That's the wonder of the story. That's the beauty of this, that God was working in the life of Joseph through all the bad things that we're going to see that happened to him to bring him to a point where he could save many people, not only in his current time, but also preserve the line of the Messiah. And that's an amazing thing. Because through it all, Joseph didn't realize that's what was occurring. That's what God was doing was keeping his promise, preserving his people, so that, so that through Israel the Messiah would come. You know, Genesis 50-20 is the Romans 8-28 of the, of the Old Testament. 
And the New Testament, Romans 8.28 says, For we know all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. That's the promise rooted in the sovereignty of God. That God is in so, such control over our lives that he will not allow us to be, first of all, tempted above that we're able, but will take everything in our lives to work it together to accomplish his sovereign purposes for our good and his glory. That's a promise we rested in the trials of life because God cares for us and he's able to care for us. Well, Genesis 50-20 is that promise in the Old Testament, a pro promise that brought meaning to Joseph's life, purpose, and rest because the, God's people were preserved. So therefore, the story is worth reading, so to speak. That's a promise you read and think, okay, what led to this? What led up to this? And it also is a story that should encourage us to trust what we cannot see because we don't see the big picture. In this story, we realize that life is bigger than our little worlds. That God is the author of life, the giver of life, the orchestrator of life. He's carrying out his plan, and he wants to use us to direct us to accomplish whatever little part of that plan he has for us, and we need to trust him. Because Joseph had no clue, no idea that he was going to actually be used to preserve the line of the Messiah. What an amazing privilege that made it worth it all, so to speak. But, you know, we don't often see the end of the story in our lives, do we? We may not know till eternity what purposes God had in allowing certain difficulties and challenges and trials in our life. But we can trust him when we cannot see because of his great love for us and his sovereign care over us. So let's go ahead and start this by reading Genesis 37. It's a longer chapter. Stay with me. And then we'll make some observations here. Now Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger, in the land of Canaan. This is the history of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers. And the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. Now Israel, Jacob, loved Joseph more than all his children, because he was the son of his old age. Also he made him a tunic of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and he told it to his brothers, and they hated him even more. So he said to them, Please hear this dream which I have dreamed. There we were, binding sheaves in the field. Then behold, my sheaf arose and also stood upright. And indeed, your sheaves stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brothers said to him, Shall you indeed reign over us? Or shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Look, I have dreamed another dream, and this time the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars bowed down to me. So he told it to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? And his brothers envied him. But his father kept the matter in mind. Then his brothers went to feed their father's flock in Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers feeding the flock in Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. So he said to him, Here I am. And he said to him, Please go and see if it is well with your brothers and with the flocks, and bring back word to me. So he sent him out of the valley of Hebron, and he went to Shechem. Now a certain man found him, and there he was, wandering in the field. And the man asked him, saying, where are you, Who are you seeking? So he said, I am seeking my brothers. Please tell me where they are feeding their flocks. And the man said, They have departed from here, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. 
Now when they saw him afar off, even before he came near, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Look, this dreamer is coming. Come, therefore, let us now kill him and cast him into some pit, and we shall say some wild beast has devoured him. We shall see what will become of his dreams. But Reuben heard it, and he delivered him out of their hands and said, Let us not kill him. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, but cast him into this pit, which is in the wilderness, and do not lay a hand on him, that he might deliver him out of their hands and bring him back to his father. So it came to pass, when Joseph had come to his brothers, that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the tunic of many colors that, that was on him. Then they took him and cast him into a pit, and the pit was empty. There was no water in it. And they sat down to eat a meal. Then they lifted their eyes and looked, and there was a company of, of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels, bearing spices, balms, and myrrh on their way to carry them down to Egypt. So Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it there if we kill our brothers and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother in our flesh. And his brothers listened. Then Midianites traders passed by, so the brothers pulled Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver, and he took Joseph to Egypt. Then Reuben returned to the pit, and indeed Joseph was not in the pit. And he tore his clothes, and he returned to his brothers and said, The lad is no more, and where shall I go? So they took Joseph's tunic, killed a kid of the goats, and dipped the tunic in blood. Then they sent the tunic of many colors, and they brought it to their father and said, We have found this. Do you know whether it is your son's tunic or not? And he recognized it and said, It is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Without doubt, Joseph is torn to pieces. Then Jacob, Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his waist, and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, For I shall go down to the grave to my son in mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Now the Midianites had sold him to Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and captain of the guard. Not a pretty story, is it, once again? The real life of the life of the patriarchs. The first thing we notice in this chapter, something which just kind of jumps out at us, is that favoritism in the home is not healthy, is it? I mean, that's kind of pretty obvious. Joseph, or Jacob favoring Joseph and making him uh, this, this tunic. Even though Joseph's mother had passed, there's still not a reason to favor him over the brother. What a disaster that occurred. It resulted in hate and envy, and in fact, a hate that festered into contemplated murder. In fact, this, this, the end of this chapter, we see their uncaring spirit towards their father. Didn't care about the effect on him and what it would do to him, the loss of his youngest son. Now, we recognize in the home that the children, these brothers, are accountable for their attitudes and their actions. But obviously here, Dad contributed. He influenced their hate because of his, fav his favoritism. And that's why... You know, dads and moms, we must realize how much our example influences the, the path of our children. And God warns us of that. Even in that promise or and warning in Galatians 6, that if we live in the flesh, the results will be corruption, death and destruction. But if we walk in the spirit, the result is life and blessing. It's a simple thing, isn't it? In fact, Numbers 14, 13 says, The Lord is long-suffering and abundant in mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he by no means clears the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. And I don't think that means that God punishes the fourth generation for the sins of great-great-great-grandpa. I think it means that the example is followed. 
ensuing generations. It often requires the discipline of God. But on the other side, 2 Timothy 1.5 says of Timothy, Paul says, when I call the remembrance a genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded is in you also. That's the promise of a godly influence. And what a wonderful privilege we have to influence, whether it's our children or others, to the effects of Christ. And here, Israel, in his favoritism, created a mess in his family. Conflict, hate, being potentially murdered. Well, then we come to his dreams. Now, we recognize that in the Old Testament, God sometimes communicated through dreams. But now we have a complete Bible. It's a, it, which is a written standard of the, wor the Word of God. We have it on record. We don't have to rely on visions and dreams anymore. The Word of God is written, recorded for us. We're told not to add to it in the, in the book of Revelation. You might ask, though, why did God choose to communicate to us this way? Why through a written book? And someone has pointed out it's because oral tradition is unreliable, isn't it? Oral tradition passed down from generation to generation tends to get clouded and confused it doesn't even, if it doesn't even change. Remember the game Telephone? You know, where you start, where you start with one person and you tell a whisper in a people's ears, you know, for 15 people and see how it comes out to the last person? It's never the same, is it? By the time 15 people repeat it, it's completely different. And what might have started out as dad wants to build his pool, after it goes through 15 people, it might come out as dad wants to geld his mule. Or something like that. It changes every time. It's never the same message. And therefore, God's written his word down because it's, it's for generations. It's for you and I to stand upon, to rely upon. It's for us, therefore, to study. And therefore, we measure every philosophy of life against the truth of God because we have a written standard that is eternal. And 2 Peter 1.20 encourages us or warns us that says, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is, a, is of any private interpretation. <coughs> Excuse me. We don't have a right to, to interpret it according to our own agendas. Twist it to our liking. It is what it is. It says what it means, and it means what it says, and we take it that way. Well, in this case, God spoke to Joseph in a dream, and, and, and the meaning they didn't understand. Joseph maybe mentioned it to his brothers and then his father because didn't know what didn't know what it meant, but it was obvious that some in that dream, if they were to come true, Joseph would rule over his family. Well, what did that happen? What happened then? Well, we find the effect then is the brothers in verse 8 hated him even more. In verse 11, they envied him and increased in more resentment towards him. Already the favored child of his father and now these dreams in which he's going to be, you know, the youngest son ruling over the family. That's unheard of. That doesn't happen. And they hated him more. You know, hate and envy are often the root of conflict, isn't it? It's unhealthy. And you know, th these brothers understood that these, but these messages indicated that their that Jacob would rule over them, and maybe they began to understand that that message was from God. In fact, Jacob himself considered the matter in verse eleven, and yet for the brothers it increased their hate of him. You know, God takes very seriously in, in the Bible the idea of bitterness, resentment, hate towards others. And sometimes we justify it because we think it's deserved, but it's never justified. And that's why God condemns slander in the Bible. Because he reminds us that you and I are made in the image of God, and therefore we are to treat one another with dignity and respect. It always leads to worse actions, as it did in the case 
of his brothers. Because in the next section, in verses 18 through 20, we find that this hate turns to murderous intentions. When they see him coming, they say, let's kill him. Which we might say is a, just another way that God, Satan was working to thwart God's plans to preserve Israel. Satan was at work to create this in the family. But Reuben intervened. We find here in verses 21 and 22 that Reuben steps in. Reuben is the oldest, and he's maybe considering his father, and he says, what, you know, what are we going to do? Let's come up with a plan to, to maybe put him in a pit, and I can sneak around and steal him away and return him to his father. You know, thankfully, Reuben went along, went, went at least that far, but his, his plan didn't work as did it. In fact, he allows then in verses 23 and 24, his brother, the brothers, when, when Joseph comes, take him with violence. What began as resentment and turned to hate and bitterness and envy turned to violence. They took him by violence, they took him by force, and they stripped him of his coat. And notice maybe that was the one thing that represented their father's favoritism. The one thing that maybe felt that made them feel unloved, they stripped away from him. And then they cast him into a pit, and which, in essence, nullified the dream. So you, see, you think you're going to rule over us? Here you go. Cast him into this pit. That's obviously that he couldn't get out of. And so the cause of their hurt and their envy and their hate, they, they dealt with. You know, when we experience mistreatment in life, is we have to recognize, even as this story unfolds, the fact that whatever occurs in our life is allowed by the hand of God, first of all. We need to take a biblical perspective towards our hurts. Too many people have adopt a victim mentality and dwell on the past for the rest of their life and never recover. And that doesn't need to happen. We need to take a biblical perspective towards our hurts in life and recognize, first of all, God's allowed it. For what reason I may not understand in the least but God has a sovereign plan, and he's caring for me, and he won't tempt me above what is a I'm able, we're promised. He is with me wherever I go. In fact, that becomes a theme of, of Joseph's story, is the Lord is with Joseph, and he is sovereignly orchestrating his plan in my life. And I need to recognize that. And, and then I also need to recognize the source of the offense. It's that it's sinners. It's others who either aren't saved, aren't walking with God, aren't following God. The whole cause of the hurt in the first place is somebody who was out of step with God, was living a life uh, as an ungodly person, an unsaved person, or someone in the flesh. And that's how the flesh is. The flesh naturally hates, envies, and murders. The Bible describes throughout the, throughout the New Testament especially the works of the flesh. And these are the things, this kind of hate and envy and murderous intentions are expressions of the flesh. And we have to recognize that the problem isn't with me, first of all. The problem is with the offender. Okay? They are just operating out of their flesh, unexcusably, not to justify them. But we have to recognize that from a biblical perspective, they act the way they're wired. And unfortunately, I was the object. And the third thing we need to remember to do is commit, it, commit ourselves to God. And the end of our scripture reading in 1 Peter 4.20, it says when we, when we are, when we do receive undeserved suffering, we commit ourselves unto him as unto a faithful creator. We, we cast our care upon him and then move forward. 
And here these young men took these things that represented their, their, their hate, the source of their, their envy, and dealt with it here in, in the capturing of Joseph. Well, then as the story goes on, we have in verse 25, Judah has a better plan. He says, well, you know what? We don't, let's, let's, uh, let's avoid murder. Let's make some money off of this. Rather than just murdering them and covering up the murder, let's just not murder them ourselves. Let's not touch them. We won't have to deal with the guilt then. We could just make money. And they, and they sold him, didn't they, for 20 pieces of silver. Well, then as you get to verse 29, here in our story, we come to, uh-oh, what are we going to tell Dad? The cover-up. How are we going to hide our sin? What, what, how are we going to deal with this? How are we going to explain this? You know, and that just kind of tells you that the flesh is always blind to consequence. They, don't even, they didn't even see that far down the road. They just had their murderous intentions and their hatred expressed towards their brother. And then all of a sudden, when, it, when the dust settled, they said, oh, no, now what are we going to do? How are we going to explain this? And, and what an what a uncaring spirit, a violent spirit, that these fellows had not only towards their brother, but towards their father. And this all just depicts the ugliness of the flesh. You know, when the Bible tells us that we have been delivered from this present evil world, and that's for believers, you know, through salvation, we're delivered from the pit of hell. Jesus died for us so that we could have forgiveness and so that we could have the assurance of eternal life. But he also died for us to purchase us to himself and provide for us new life so that we can be delivered from this present evil world, that flesh which acts in such ugly ways, which the flesh which is so naturally irritable, crabby, ugly, and uncaring. And actually, when, when God says he delivers us from this present evil world, he's talking about ourselves and our tendency to, to, to live ungodly, selfish, uncaring lives, harmful lives. It's his flesh that brings, and his desires that bring destruction to not only myself but to others. But we praise God that God has given us new life to walk in. We are new creations in Christ. We have a new power in Christ. We have the Spirit of God who has provided power, what has come upon us, and we have that to enjoy. But when we do sin, and when these fellows realize, okay, we've got something to cover up here, we, it, 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 sin requires one of those two responses. Either we hide it, you know, we justify it with our excuses. Sometimes in our pride, we think we had the right to act as we do, or we think the other person had it coming. And we find a way to hide our sins from others, forgetting the whole time that God sees. That's the important one, isn't it? We don't hide from God, do we? We think, might think we do. We might ignore that fact. The other response is confession. And that's what God desires, because we make mistakes, and God wants us to make it right. Proverbs 28, 13 says, He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. Whoever confesses sin will not prosper. That's what the Bible says. It doesn't prosper. Even though they, they managed to vent their hate and their envy and their bitterness towards Joseph, they carried this guilt. They had to hide it, with, hide it before their father. In fact, in the next section, in the morning of the father, you wonder how could they comfort their father in this cruel deception? How insincere. When Joseph, or excuse me, Jacob would not be comforted and they try to comfort him and encourage him all the time, knowing they're lying to him. In fact, they're the one who caused the thing, problem in the first place. You don't prosper when you cover your sin. But whoever confesses and forsakes them has mercy. God does forgive. He restores. In fact, New Testament, we're told that God cleanses, forgives, and, and as he restores us to a place of fellowship with him. 
And so in the last part of this chapter, we have um, Jacob's mourning and this whole deception going on. And you know, that's just the nature of sin. It always snowballs, doesn't it? You tell one lie, you got to tell a bigger lie to cover it up. That's cover-up. It, it, it just goes from one thing to the next to the next. And it not only snowballs in our cover-up, but it often increases a hardness in our hearts towards our God, towards making things right as well, does it not? You know, as you read through this chapter, you can't help but notice that Joseph is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, especially when you consider the entirety of this story. And there's several things here that, that we find that Joseph, Jake, Joseph as a type of Christ, as an example of Christ, in the parallels of their lives. One of the things we see here that we saw, first of all, is Jace, Joseph was hated by his brothers undeservedly. We have no idea if he contributed, if he was arrogant, if he held it over them. We don't see that in the scriptures. We don't know what his personal attitude was in this. But, you know, his dad made him a coat, and God sent him the dreams, and he was hated for it. On the surface, at least, it seems like undeserved suffering. Well, Jesus said in John 15, 25, in that passage that he's warning his disciples that, you know, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. He says in verse 25, but this happened that the word might be fulfilled, which is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. And that was the Lord Jesus. They hated him for no reason, no justifiable reason. They had their reasons, but no justifiable reasons, just like in Joseph's life. There's no justifiable reason for that kind of resentment and hate. And yet we recognize the reasons Jesus was put on a cross because he was hated was because he spoke the truth and live the truth. And John 8, 40, he talks about their, re their rejection of him, their resentment of him. In verse 40, he says, But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. He said, Abraham did not do this. He says, that's why you came out telling you the truth. And apparently, in, in the life of Joseph, that's all he was, reflecting true things that happened to him. He didn't have it coming, just as Jesus didn't. In fact, if anything, Jesus was expressing his love and care for his people and telling him the truth, even though the truth hurt. Even though it was unwelcome, it was still the truth, and it's truth they needed to hear. In John chapter 10, it says this, Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him, and Jesus answered them, Many good works I have shown you from my Father, for which of those do you stone me? But Jesus lived a righteous life, a perfect life. There was no reason, no cause in him for any kind of punishment. He, says, he asked them, What's your reason? Well, he knew the reason, but he wanted to know, what, How could you justify this? It's because they resented the truth and the light that Jesus spoke and lived. Some people might ask today in today's so-called progressive thinking, why didn't Jesus try to find common ground with these religious folks just to get along? It's because that, that should be, answer should be obvious. Because he would have had to set aside the truth. He simply was living the truth and speaking the truth. Lovingly. It wasn't the loving thing to set those things aside just so they could have peace you know, peace in the Jewish family. And that's why we recognize, as the Bible indicates to us, that speaking the truth has one of two effects on people. And it has an effect on people because it is a living book. According to Isaiah 55, God says, my word will not return to me void, empty. It requires a response because it is a living book. And hopefully the response is acceptance on one hand. When you, when you show people the love and life of Jesus in your life, and treat them with grace and kindness 
that people will respond when you share with them the message of life, the gospel, the good news that Jesus died for them to rescue them and save them for all eternity. And what you want, what you hope for is a response, acceptance. That's what Jesus was looking for. He came to his own, we're told us. He came, John, when he came to the world, but one didn't know him, the other rejected him. And that's the other response, is rejection. That's what John 15 was about. Jesus says, you know, they, they hated me. He, he ended up on the cross. They're going to hate you if you live, live his life, and you speak his truth. You're going to get often the same response. And that's a warning to us. And that's exactly what happened to Joseph in our story. You know, in reality, we recognize that when truth is accepted, it really unifies people. And that's the, that's the wonder of being part of a church family, whether it's a universal church family or a local church family with other believers. Jesus unifies, doesn't he? First of all, positionally, we're one in Christ. And secondly, practically, we can, li we can live and enjoy the love of Jesus together. But we have to be careful not to get caught up in movements that, that prioritize unity at the expense of truth. And that happens a lot. That unity is, is, becomes the number one objective, but in order to do so, we must set aside the truth in order to avoid that which causes conflict, hate, resentment, and so on. And so we're to be unifiers. And to be unifiers, we speak the truth in love. We watch and enjoy the oneness in Christ that develops as we stand together in the truth of the gospel. You see, the Bible does not call the church to unify at all costs. God values unity. He encourages us to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, and then he goes on to mention some truths that unify in Ephesians chapter 4. But instead, and we're told later in Ephesians chapter 4 to speak the truth in love, because ultimately, that's what unifies. And as we begin to stand together on the Word of God, it it brings us together. And that's why when I look at history, I'm really glad there are those who took a stand and spoke the truth, like the Reformers. People who gave their lives. The martyrs of the Reformer are many. People like William Tyndale, John Rogers, Thomas More, Edward Campion, among many, many others who were often mur martyred, burnt at the stake because they simply spoke the truth faithfully. You know, John Huss, I remember I read a book of uh, John Huss's life, and he was a forerunner to the Reformation. He died and he was killed in 1415 for his teaching against the Roman Catholic Church. And Martin Luther said this about him. Martin Luther said, I was overwhelmed with astonishment, Luther later wrote. I could not understand for cause they had birthed so great a man who explained the scriptures with so much gravity and skill. He did not understand. Well, that's the question Jesus asked in John. Why do you hate me? Why, why do you, you want to kill me? I'm simply speaking the truth and living the truth. And that's what the world needs. I'm really glad that people in my past who stood for the truth, spoke the truth, preserved the truth, maybe at a cost, some cost their lives, so that you and I could have the good news today, pure and unblemished. So the world needs truth. And here in, Joseph, in Joseph's life, when he... When he uh, excuse me, was tortured and captured and sold undeservedly, suffered undeservedly. He pictures the Lord Jesus Christ who suffered undeservedly so that we could be saved today. And so you and I need to be true speakers, don't we, do we not? No matter what the cost. Second thing we see in Joseph's life here is that he was sold for money. 
Sound familiar? Now, Jesus took a little higher price. He was 30 pieces of silver. Jo Joseph was 20 pieces of silver. I, I think that's completely insignificant, but I mentioned it anyway. Matthew 27, 3 and 4 says, Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? You see to it. Third thing we see here in verse 27 of our chapter is that the, uh, these brothers said, let not our hand be upon him. So they realized, you know, we, don't, we shouldn't maybe be the ones that killed him. Why should we shed blood? Let not our hand be upon him. Well, in John 18, 31, Pilate said to them, Jesus' accusers, the religious leaders, you take him and judge him according to your law. Therefore the Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Instead, they were pressuring, pressuring the authorities to pronounce his condemnation. No parallel, isn't it? When, when, the, when Joseph's brothers realized, let not our hand be upon him. Fourth thing, parallel we see in his life here is that Joseph was rejected and left for dead in verse 24, and then rescued to a new purpose in verse 36. Just like the Lord Jesus, who was crucified on the cross, but then was rose again, victorious and living to carry on his purpose of, of reconciling the world to himself. Acts Chapter 2, verses 22 through 24 say this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined and purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified, put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it, and so on. And so Joseph's, being left for dead and yet being rescued to a new purpose, which we will see as we continue through these chapters, pictures the Lord Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection to carry on the work he promised to do, to build his church, to redeem souls. We also see in verse 23 that they took his coat, that tunic of many colors, didn't he? And John 19, 23 says, Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments, made four parts to each soldier apart, and also the tunic. Now, the tunic was without seam woven from the top in one piece. And so both lost their coats, their tunics. And, and of course, we see here that the tunic was covered in the blood of an innocent animal, which pictures our Savior as well, only it was his own blood. Hebrews 9.14 says, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Parallel, isn't it? Many parallels. In fact, as we began our story by reading the end of the story, we find the last parallel is the purpose of it all. In Genesis 50, 20, we saw that God intended it to, for good to save many people alive, to rescue. Joseph's life was a rescue plan. This, this whole idea of going into the pit and then being sold into slavery, and as the story continues, he's, he has more trials to come, as we'll see in the story of Joseph, was for a purpose. Well, 1 Peter 3.18 says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive by the Spirit. The just for the unjust. That was his purpose. You see, Joseph's life pictures us the whole purpose for the Lord Jesus coming as we celebrate, especially this time of year, but we as Christians celebrate it every day. He came to rescue sinners. He came to redeem us and save us from from our lost condition in sin. And that's why 
we consider John 11, 25 and 26, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes me, believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? He asked her. Do you believe this? That's the question, isn't it? Through the Lord Jesus suffering his death and resurrection, his purpose was to rescue us. To, to bring life eternal, everlasting life in the assurance of heaven. And the question is, do we believe it? In fact, the book of John, which, which has many references to salvation through faith alone in Christ, says this at the end of the book. He says, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. And therefore, as Joseph's life was meant to rescue people physically so that not only could the, the people in, the, in, in Egypt be, be, be rescued, the, na the nation of Israel could be rescued, the physical line of the Messiah could be preserved, so the Lord Jesus died to rescue us.